let's start with the threat landscape. Global online retailers booming, and you know retailers have seen massive growth, and it's all amazing. But it's also a great time to be a cyber criminal too. You know, what are the vulnerabilities that we're seeing? Are they still the same, or how do you see what's going on right now? Well, first of all, thank you very much for making some time um, and in inviting me to chat. This is such a weird time. There's so many things changing in the economy and even in the uh, social fabric of the, the United States. So what I've learned in almost four decades of security is that vulnerabilities arise when things change, <laughs> even if it's right. a good change. Right. When, when things are changing, systems are changing, business processes are changing, people's work arrangements are changing. doesn't matter whether it's changing better, worse, or if it's just different, then that generally creates an opportunity for vulnerabilities. It might be workarounds or shortcuts that are put in place perhaps temporarily that uh, are never backed out. It could be that some very mature business processes replaced with something that's way less mature where the teams managing it haven't thought through all the special cases. And it goes on and on and on. So my, my experience has not been that, you know, wow, in the last you know, few months hasn't been that huge gigantic spike up in vulnerabilities. What I worry about is that there are vulnerabilities that are being taken advantage of now that we're not going to find out about until a few months from now. You're an expert at this. You know that when somebody's exploiting, in many cases, you don't see it until the effects hit later. So a lot of the sort of pundits and experts are pointing to these big upticks they see. And certainly fishing, I do uh, see that. But I haven't personally seen that in, in my work. I, I more see just a lot of change and I have this fear that we're going to see the impact later. So we'll see if I'm right, but it's, that's been my experience over the years. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. I think we haven't seen very sort of high-profile breaches being reported, but it could be many, many reasons, right? One is reporters are all staying at home, so they just don't have the bandwidth to investigate things. Um, security teams are large enterprises and forensics teams and whatnot. They're also working from home, so they're not getting a lot of their work done. So there may be many reasons why we haven't seen sort of this onslaught of news related to these kinds of activities. But I, I think vulnerabilities inevitably arise when there is a change in systems and processes. And I think the biggest thing about COVID is not just that systems and processes changed, it was that they changed overnight. You know, people went into lockdown overnight and that changed the way we work fundamentally. I think we've you know, read about some of the things related to Zoom and VPNs and so on and so forth. And clearly the attackers have different targets. I think phishing has definitely increased. There's a lot of talk about IP related to viruses and potential uh, cures and, and vaccines. There's probably a lot more state-sponsored activity. We've heard about some of that, you know, where the Chinese ministry was attacked. So I think there's definitely a very shifting landscape and we wouldn't know exactly what happened until probably things settle down. And, and unfortunately, by that time, it's too late. But most certainly, the hackers are also active. The way the wind is shifting here is that more of our infrastructure and business is moving online, right? I mean, just in my own day-to-day -day work activities, things that I used to do by getting up uh, you know, off my chair in my office and walking down and doing in New York City, 
I'm not more or less doing the same things, but doing it in front of a computer screen. This could be as simple as eating lunch or buying things or interacting with a third party. So that just increases the attack surface for cyber. You know, it may close down some other things, you know, certainly makes us safer against biological viruses. So that's a really good thing. But I, I would say that for the most part, this shift toward an, an increase in virtual activity would have to be recognized as having that impact on attack surfaces, no question. So, you know, it makes for uh, busier times in cybersecurity, that's for sure. So do you think that there are specific ways that attackers are using the crisis to launch attacks? Yeah, I think phishing is definitely an area where people have seen a spike and reported a spike. But the, the thing about phishing is it's one of the things that's pretty obvious, right? We have email security systems all over the place. There's filtering going on. So phishing is generally something that can be detected. But to me, that's a symptom of, a, of an underlying trend. We've also seen you know, in Tala's own world, we've definitely seen a, a significant spike in attacks against web assets, web properties, right? A lot of companies whose brick and mortar stores, retail stores were shuttered, also correspondingly saw a big increase in their online commerce, right? People are shopping online, people are buying stuff online. And hackers have recognized that web assets have until recently, well, even now, been very exposed to a lot of vulnerabilities, some of which we've blogged about, but that has actually led to a number of breaches. People, for example, have been stocking up on kitchen items, food items, home appliances, and so on and so forth. And we have seen attackers move uh, very quickly to compromise sites like Nutribullet and Tupperware, for example. Their website got breached. EasyJet, which is an airline uh, based in Europe, also got breached. So We've definitely seen web assets being exposed because, you know, historically, perhaps the companies, enterprises didn't pay a lot of attention to web security. And given the massive spike in online commerce, hackers have found it a, a very fertile hunting ground for credentials and credit cards. You know, threat actors like Magecart have been absolutely active in the last couple of months. I would agree 100% with that. I mean, web security has taken on a new significance in the last few months simply because it's the way we, we more or less navigate our lives. I mean, it used to be that mobile and web were complementary to the kinds of things we do. Um, it got a little more intense, and it just has accelerated in the last couple of months. One thing I would share is that where phishing and social engineering and some of the uh, attacks on businesses could be somewhat on the a lower end of the intensity scale, I would look to the other side and recognize that nation states have become much more brazen in the last six months. You know, just look at the elections in the United States. Right. Um, four years ago, there was almost this immediate, very elastic denial by um, nation states that they were doing this sort of thing. It seems to me that at this point, it's almost openly acknowledged that it's going on, you know, with this complete impunity and this brazenness that I've never seen before amongst, you know, the larger countries. I'm no political scientist, but it just, it appears to me that the larger countries have gotten much more brazen. And to me, that's terrifying because if there's not a feeling that there'll be accountability through, you know, real-time detection and prevention and consequence. If that goes away, then we've got an issue. So I, I, I'm so happy, um, Anand, that your team has made 
nice strides in reducing risk in and around web security, particularly on the client side, because I think that is part of this attack vector. And it's going to be on both ends of that intensity scale. It'll be, you know, hackers doing it for whatever reason, may not be the cause of some serious loss of life or something. But at the other end of the spectrum, it also is part of the attack surface for these large nation states that are building campaigns. I'm hoping that this brazenness will eventually manifest itself in some sort of shared agreement about what should and what shouldn't happen and what's allowed, what the rule of conduct is. Right now, we don't have those prescribed rules of conduct around cyber warfare, I guess. The other angle that I think we should mention when it comes to web security is privacy, right? And I think um, the web is not only a conduit for people losing credentials and credit cards, which is something that we've seen. But, you know, the Zoom case sort of brought this front and center, right? When we log on to conferencing systems, and a lot of them are happening over the browser, people don't want to download clients anymore. Uh, You give permission to that service for your camera or your microphone, that can trigger privacy violations, right? Where you may have, for example, unauthorized third parties or authorized third parties having access to my, my camera, my microphone, my speaker, in my geolocation, my accelerometer, all of which could eventually be used for various nefarious purposes, uh, but is also under the purview of lots of privacy regulations. So I think the web is absolutely going to be very interesting for the next several years, because I think COVID uh, virus itself might be under control, but the impact on our workplace and our business processes aren't going to change overnight. And so I think Privacy is another important component that we should talk about. Yeah, I would certainly agree with that. It's becoming a big deal, but do you think there's enough awareness about it yet? Do people understand or care enough about the implications? So this is it. I'll, I'll, I'll address that. I think it's way better. Like your, your question around awareness. Had you asked that a few years ago, I probably would have bemoaned that, you know, executives and boards and teams running IT, we're just not paying much attention. I think that's changed. I think for the most part, from the executive team down, people recognize how important this is. That doesn't mean that they're doing everything they should be doing. But at least I think we've made good progress in terms of general recognition that these are problems that need to be solved. So that's good. That's step one. I would imagine the next couple of years, you know, we'll hopefully move from from that to a more embedded set of solutions. Like, I I think it's always been a mistake to design something like lay out your e-commerce solution and then call in the security team to go do something to fix it. That never struck me as the right approach. It always seemed so much more reasonable to have security become an embedded component. So, So the awareness is good in the sense that you can at least go retrofit something you built. It's better than nothing, but you'd prefer that awareness to be available and ready as you're building something because then you get the um, integrated security protection. So awareness of step one generally leads to retrofit, but in the longer term, it leads to better system designs, which is what, you know, all of us would, would prefer. Nobody wants to see an overlay. Yeah. yeah, I think that's something you're seeing increasingly with GDPR, though, with you know the sort of privacy by design elements that they're trying to. Yeah, I was going to say I think the biggest change that that I've seen is, you know, perhaps at the consumer level, you could argue that 
awareness is still quite low, right? People maybe at some level don't care about <laughs> the fact that they're revealing so much on social media and other web sources. But the biggest thing I think the regulators have done is they have made sure that the enterprises start caring about it, right? Security teams and privacy teams, you know, do audit what data they're collecting, what data they're sharing and how they're sharing. It's still rudimentary. I think we just don't have a concerted effort around privacy, which I think we're starting to see vendors show up in that space. But, you know, I think Ed is absolutely right. Uh, Security is generally an afterthought. Privacy, the pendulum has swung so far on the other side where we have absolutely no privacy, no awareness, no checks and balances. And it's going to take a long time for that pendulum to swung back to normal. But I think we're starting to see awareness build up, at least at the enterprise level, perhaps not enough at the consumer level. And obviously the regulators have forced that equation. So let's see. Do you think it's because the value of data has increased because of this you know, huge shift online that's become even more prevalent now with people working from home? Do you see it as something that enterprises are placing far greater value on it than it's something they're going to do more about? I mean, it's interesting, right? I think on the one hand, the value of data seems to be increasing all the time, right? Because we just have much better tools now to make use of that data to, you know, for targeted advertising and whatnot. On the other hand, we're also seeing, unfortunately, in many parts of the world, privacy being eroded because governments want to increase the surveillance of citizens for various reasons, right? Sometimes under the pretext of security and and whatnot, transparency. COVID, I think one of the biggest impacts that COVID has had is surveillance has become the norm now, right? And, and lots of governments around the world are using COVID as an excuse to increase their surveillance of, of their citizens. You know, hopefully some of them are doing it for the right reasons, but, you know, you can imagine now that uh, essentially uh, a lot of governments have carte blanche to continue to monitor people's movements in the name of, hey, I'm going to monitor um, these spreaders and these people who are potentially infected and tracking their movements. So I think Privacy, unfortunately, is going to take another hit because of uh, things like COVID. I would agree 100% with that. It's a, it's a tricky thing, right? The privacy, I think, in most cases, is pretty contextual, right? It's contextual to the generation that you're dealing with. You know, younger people have a very different opinion about their personal data than say someone in my generation, a little different. And certainly regionally and, and country-wise, the spectacular differences in the way a young graduate student in China thinks about his or her data versus a young graduate student in California. Very different opinion. Right. You know, you could argue neither more valid, but just different. And, yep. and as the world is so completely interconnected, it creates collisions. And we're in the middle of that right now. Nobody quite knows what it means to talk about privacy. Like with those contact tracing apps, if, if anyone is you know, walking around with a contact tracing app and then suddenly gets a little notification that says, hey, you, know, you were exposed to someone, well, what are you supposed to do with that? You know, are you going to now not go to work? Maybe you were wearing a mask, so do you ignore it? Do you pay attention to it? And then if you get, you know, some sort of notification from somebody out of band that they were notified that they were near you, can you, can you give them some information? Do you trust that? Do you not? Are there privacy issues there? It, all, all across the board, we are going to be stressing 
the limits of, of how society views privacy. And I think that generations and regions will be two dimensions here that will dictate much of the response. So do you think that if people put more of a physical dollar value on data that they would change their approach to how they deal with it and how they secure it? Yeah, it's interesting. I think, you know, when you think about uh, data security, the first obvious question is why does it matter? You know, at some level, it seems like data is just bits and bytes and it's ultimately meaningless. But the real value, obviously, in data is when it gets translated into information and that information gets put into a process and that process eventually yields business results, right? And we have most obviously seen this in the world of advertising, but from a hacker's perspective, for example, my credit card number, 16-digit credit card number, which seems like a meaningless set of characters, has value, has monetary value, right? If that goes into the dark web, that, that they're able to sell it for a few dollars a pop. If they're able to add onto that my first name and last name and my street address and my date of birth, then that can be $30, $40, right? So I think the, the value of data, as Ed pointed out, is in the context. And if, it, if the context is understood, then data has tremendous value in the form of information, which can then be monetized for various purposes. So I think one of the challenges that we've seen when it comes to web security, of course, is historically when security teams have thought about protecting customer data, for example, things like PII and credit cards, they've generally focused inward. They've looked inside their own data centers, inside their own databases, and they've tried to understand who they're exposing that to, who else has access to that, which employees have access to that, and so on and so forth. That's obviously vital, but they have, in a nutshell, left their front door open when it comes to the web. Because if you think about where all this wonderful data that they're collecting comes from, it's all collected from the web. People don't use paper and pen anymore. You know, when you want to get registration information about a user, there is a registration form on your website where they go in and they enter all their information, date of birth and street address and credit card number. So the, the front door remains the browser unless they're using a native app. And so that is a space where we really don't have adequate solutions. Things uh, like endpoint security systems just don't do a good job of protecting against those kinds of leaks. And so... I think we're starting to see enterprises understand the value of data and they're recognizing that the front door of data collection is open and that is going to be a very important vulnerability and a source of breaches. So when we think about MageGuard and other groups, rather than just think about them as client-side attacks or website attacks, they're really trying to steal data. And the biggest challenge is making sure that you can close the front door of data exfiltration, which is your web browser. And, and obviously that's where Tala and, and other companies are focused. So this is a very exciting and dynamic space and we're, we're going to see more activity, I think, in the next few years. Let's just explore that maybe a little bit more in terms of like what can businesses do about it? I think it starts with uh, kind of taking stock of your web assets, right? Understanding, number one, that web assets are the place where data collection happens, right? The browser is where the, the data comes in. And then recognizing that, okay, you may have a large enterprise may have, you know, hundreds, dozens and hundreds of, of web assets that are actively collecting this kind of information, recognizing and identifying them and identifying what kind of security mechanisms you have in place around the client browser to be able to monitor data collection, to be able to monitor third parties that are integrated into these web assets, understanding 
who's collecting what? Is there data leakage happening? Is a website compromised such that you have a malicious actor like Magecard? And then putting systems in place across all these properties so that you can actually now start to monitor and block you know, inadvertent leakage or malicious data collection by hackers. So it's really understanding your exposure, which I think starts with those basic questions of how many web assets do I have? What kind of sensitive data am I collecting at, in these web assets? And then do I have the security mechanisms in place to even detect something inadvertent or malicious happening? So I think that's, that's what I would recommend uh, companies do. And that's what companies are doing. Large enterprises, financial institutions are now starting to take stock of their web inventory and starting to put technologies and, and controls in place to be able to block that kind of anomalous activity at the browser level. And what sort of controls are those? I think, you know, again, we Tala has blogged about this uh, uh, a lot and we talk about it a lot as well, right? I think one of the cool things that, that Google has done uh, is that they have pioneered along with other leading uh, what I would call, what I call web scale enterprises like Facebook and Twitter and PayPal and others. They have pioneered a set of controls and, and systems at the browser level. And Google has that the wonderful vantage point of being the, the most popular browser in the world, right, with Chrome. And so they've baked in a lot of these controls like content security policy and sub-resource integrity. It's a very fluid space where Google, for example, has added new controls for feature policy, which allows you to control, you know, who has access to the camera and the microphone through the web interface. They've added new capabilities to identify, you know, sophisticated DOM injection attacks. So these are some of the controls and systems that are freely available that any enterprise can use as long as they have the resources to be able to do that in an accurate and a concerted manner. So these are the systems uh, and controls that we recommend for our clients. And I think a lot of enterprises are starting to use them and are starting to see wonderful results in being able to detect and block these attacks. And we're going to see this. And I think we, we saw the same journey in the network stack where people started rolling out SSL TLS. We started seeing the same movement on the server side where people started to implement things like web application firewalls and you know, bot detection and anti-fraud. And we're seeing that movement in the client. And so it took several years, right? Don't get me wrong. It's not going to happen overnight. So, you know, talk to me five years from now, Pam, and <laughs> we'll hopefully be in a much better place on the client side than, than we are today. <laughs> That'd be great. What do you think are the barriers to people getting involved and doing it though? I mean, it seems like such an obvious solution and you can, you know, use the power that's built into the browser to, to secure everything. I think it was in, in Shawshank Redemption that Red says it, it all comes down to time and pressure. You know, I think in, in the case of security, it's all, it's time, money, and people. This, this is not going to happen overnight. You need to take stock of your assets. You need to evaluate them. You need to understand your risk exposure. That all takes time. It, it takes money because, you know, in some cases, you're going to work with vendors like us. In some cases, you're going to hire consultants to do this. And then finally, people. These are fairly new technologies and standards, and it takes sophisticated security engineers sometimes to, to make this happen, which is one of the things that enterprises struggle with. And, and clearly, one of the things that we built Tala around, our value proposition is that we can minimize that equation of time, resources, and dollars so that companies can start to see value quickly without having to hire sophisticated engineers and without having to <laughs> spend an inordinate amount of money. So that's really the value of automation. So automation is the key to doing this at scale and that's really the value that Tala brings. Okay. 
So what are your closing thoughts? Where do you see this going? How do you see things developing? You know, if I could answer that question accurately, I think I'd be making a lot of money. I think nobody knows in reality what's happening even at the moment, let alone what's going to happen in the future. One thing is clear that we are in a period of unprecedented, unanticipated and unpredictable change in so many different ways across IT. And I think COVID has exposed a lot of the frailties in the way IT systems and processes work. But I also am encouraged by the things that I'm seeing inside Tala and inside our customers and in the way people have responded. So I do believe that there's going to be a a lot of change happening in the way people work, uh, people access work, people buy things and people purchase things online, obviously. So uh, this is just going to be a tremendously exciting place, I think, for the next few years as we unravel the the implications of COVID and and many other things that are happening in the world. So change is the one constant. I wouldn't hazard a guess in terms of where the change is, but clearly this is going to be an exciting space. And I'm very happy that Tala is playing a very important role in protecting enterprises through this period of unprecedented change in a very important space, which I think is going to grow in importance a.k.a. Their, their web assets and securing their web assets. Thanks very much for your time today, Anand. I appreciate Ed joining us as well and uh, looking forward to having more of these. Thanks, Pam. Thank you.